connecting to the AOC Podcast Network. Enjoy your stay. Well, I'd like to welcome my guest this morning, um, Sarah Brabant, who is an old and dear friend um, and my professor at one time in life. And I would like to read a quote, and then I'll let Sarah say. I was quoted as a community quote here at Acadiana Open Channel, uh, where I'm lucky enough to be able to do these uh, podcasts with lots of help. And the quote was, uh, when people want to learn about healing, I usually recommend that they volunteer for hospice. We are all going to pass away. We may all not be cured, but we can all be healed. So I never used the word pass away. And I knew that I had been misquoted. (laughs) And so... How do we even deal with helping people who don't even want to own we die, Sarah? Because death is a part of life. In some ways, I think it's a part of, it's the ultimate healing. And so when I, when I read that, I knew I hadn't said that. And so how would you address that? Let's just start there, because you taught me death and dying at the <laughs> university. And you may remember that when you took death and dying from me, that any time a student used uh, a euphemism like passed away or went west or left us or whatever. Or they got lost. We lost them. Or got lost. (laughs) uh, That uh, I would stop and correct them. Your aunt died. Right. Uh, It's interesting to me because I've also been very involved with uh, children's grief for many, many, many years and was one of the founders of Healing House, which is a program for bereaved children. Exactly. That this does enormous damage for children because they don't understand. They understand if somebody died, they're not going to come back. Right. Uh, I, I remember a little girl one night at Healing House who said to me, Miss Sarah, my aunt keeps telling me that my mother is not really dead, that she's going to come back. But she said, you know, Miss Sarah, I think that when you die, you are very, very dead, and you don't come back. (laughs) Uh, Now, this was a five-year-old child. I totally get it. And I responded to her, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yes, I think one of the real problems in this part of the country is the inability to say the word died. Dead, death. Exactly. Well, when I read the quote, I knew I hadn't said that. No. (laughs) Uh, Because because I... Not after taking my course. Well, even before I took your course, because I don't know if you remember that in 1989 or 90, you trained me when I became a hospice volunteer. So I was trained <laughs> to be able to take your course, I think, you know. And so I understood, and I've, I've had deaths in my life and in my family. And um, so I told uh, the, the, my, 
I tell one of the guys who works here that helps me with my podcast, and I said, look, I didn't say that. He goes, well, would you like to correct her? Well, I'm not in a class. Mm-hmm. I don't have to correct her. Mm-hmm. No one did anything wrong. She's just a sample of how in this society exactly. we can't say that word. Mm-hmm. And so if we can't say the word, no. how can we teach children or how can we accept the reality of what that word means? And if we can't say the word, how can we talk about a very, very important part of all of our lives? Exactly. And I understand that in some way, religion has muddied the waters. Yes. Um, uh, I was born and raised and still am a Catholic. I'm practicing. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll get good at it. <laughs> Maybe I'll get better. But we, 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 we take things that are real and shroud them in religious terms to bring a bigger meaning. But if they're not real to begin with, mm-hmm. we're shrouding an untruth mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a holy shroud. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Shroud of Turin had Jesus in it, and that was a real thing. But when we're shrouding our inability to say a word or deal with the reality, mm-hmm. then the shroud never lets us get to that truth we keep going around it and that's a you know it's just how it is it's it's so i i'm happy to be able to give clarity to the misquote (laughs) and and hopefully bring clarity to people who are listening um exactly um i took a course well now became a volunteer uh after i had a mastectomy in 1989 and wanted to work with cancer patients who were all facing their mortality and maybe the end of their life, or if not, maybe a new phase where you can live fully because you have experienced um, or realized that death was mm-hmm. knocking on your door. So um, there. since then, that's been so long ago, huh? Since then, there has been a growth in healership and people who do healing work. Mm -hmm. But if those people never could say death Mm -hmm. or dying, then they have their own kind of shroud Mm -hmm. around the reality of we're just not going to be here forever. So that's one of the reasons I suggest to someone who is wanting to do this healing work, energy work, whatever you call it, that they take a course in death and dying or become hospice volunteers. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's hard to believe we've been friends that long. We have been a long time. <laughs> and I remember the grace of our friendship when my daughter died. Mm-hmm. And I had a four-year-old granddaughter, and I didn't know what to tell her. And I, I, and, and, and I remember you just taking her and and just simply saying you're going to be going to the funeral home and your mother her body is going to be there but she's not there mm-hmm. and that if you want to touch her you can but she'll probably be cold but that's okay because she's not there and you kept saying you know she's not there to her and that her uncle and her dad could support her in mm-hmm. just having this very real experience of mm-hmm. being with a dead body. Mm-hmm. 
So it would have been anti-real to say to her, your mama's sleeping. And then the next day you you put her down <laughs> in the ground and close the door. No, no. It's yeah. uh, her mother's body, and we loved her mother dearly. And uh, so we treat her body with tremendous respect. We honor her right. body. Uh, yes, I remember, and I remember she went back several times, and, and one person came to me and said, she's going back again. <laughs> and yeah. I said, yes. <laughs> and that was exactly what she needed to do. So she had this, yes, she had this, um, a plank of truth to walk on. Mm-hmm. And the truth does not have to be expressed in medical terms, Mm-mm. and it doesn't have to be expressed in religious terms. It is a reality. And the truth shall make you free. Amen. And that is that. My father believed that so. My father was an early oncologist, a pioneering oncologist, uh-huh. and he believed that you tell people the truth. Years ago in the 60s, uh, the... Um, Ladies Home Journal did an article okay. by three physicians. One said, uh, I will never tell the truth. I never tell people the truth. Now, these were physicians in a Ladies Home Journal? There were three physicians okay. who wrote an article that appeared in the Ladies Home Journal. And one said, I never tell the truth. The second one said, I sometimes tell the truth. And my father said, I always tell the truth. He said, sometimes when you've told people the truth, uh, they then come back a couple of days later and they say, have you found out what's wrong with me? And he said, some people don't want the truth, and so you don't beat them over the head with it. Right, right. Uh, And then you say, well, we're working on that. Uh, But it's interesting to me, Becca, that the first two articles had to be anonymous. My father's article was... He owned it, yeah. yeah. And somebody said, but you'd have so many suicides. And he said, I never had a suicide because I was honest with them uh, and I was there for them and they could come and talk to me. It's amazing. uh, He would would say, and, and... we're going to do everything we can. We're going to treat with what we have to treat. Exactly. And so I grew up I grew up with that. That's uh and so when my mother had cancer, uh we were very honest and we talked. And and that was good. And I was I was able to and and had the opportunity in my life to have to deal with the truth to survive some of the things I dealt with. Mm-hmm. So the truth became my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can all often get more mileage out of being concerned for the feelings of the people who can't own the truth mm-hmm. on one level, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not helpful in the long run mm-hmm. because then that's not a step towards everybody becoming this free, mm-hmm. the, the freedom you spoke of. Wow. So we met in 
89 or 90. And then again, <laughs> when I took your class, mm-hmm. uh, one of the other things I remember, I don't know how often, but you came to Camp Bluebird, which is a camp for adults yes. with cancer. And the first the first time I came, uh, I was made to come as a, as a camper mm-hmm. uh, because I'd had skin cancers, as you know, multiple skin cancers. Exactly. And so I, I, I was just... I really didn't want to come as a camper, uh, but I did, and it was a wonderful gift. To and me. I remember in in your and sharing, then I came as a counselor. Then you came as a counselor. I remember in your sharing one time at the time you were working with AIDS mm-hmm. patients, people with AIDS, and um, and you had the the thing you had was a uh, uh, something on your nose, and a little piece of the of your nose had been removed, and and you kept trying to explain to whoever was treating you that, oh, it didn't really matter that much compared to what your boys were going through. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the nurse looked at you and, and basically said, yeah, but Sarah, it's your nose. Yeah, that was Susan Bula. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But it was your nose, Sarah, and that was a wonderful gift uh, because I think uh, people who do the kinds of things that we do uh, – often begin to minimize themselves. Oh, yes. We don't count. We don't count, and yet we do count. We have our pains. Uh, I think only when we can uh, seek healing ourselves are we able to be any part of somebody else's healing. So then we also did work. You were working at St. Luke's, and I would go work on some of your boys. Uh (laughs) So... My guys, I call your guys, them. exactly. That's the <laughs> so. I remember going there, and I remember, like you know, today we have the Faith House for women who have left abusive situations. Yes, and and their the their residence needs to be um, a secret so that if a the perpetrator or whoever had been abusing them can't find them easily. Okay. But I still can't get over the fact that St. Luke's is where these, these guys went to be able to die. It was not a halfway house or, and, and that had to be hidden from people in Lafayette who would. Oh yes. Like, how can we do that socially? That amazed me. And it now is it amazing. is no longer, um, and a lot of work has been done to assimilate and accept people with AIDS and AIDS itself. But I remember that time, how sad that we have to provide a secret place for people to die uh-huh. because who <laughs> they are scares or brings out hate. Mm-hmm. I Just to interject, which Please. I always found so interesting, was the Lazarus uh, complex that there really weren't drugs for people with AIDS and they died when the epidemic really started here uh, they were dead within six months usually right of when we knew them and then they developed the cocktails um, and some of those guys are still alive exactly. today that I knew there because they've been on the cocktail uh, and I asked one I said what is harder to think that you're living and find out you're dying or think you're dying and find out that you're living and his answer I've never forgotten he said to 
to be dying thinking you're dying and find out that you're living. Exactly. He said that was really the hardest, and that really just was something I had to wrap my mind around, but I think he was, I mean, he knew he was doing that. Was that. His run, that was his... But, yes, when we first started, uh, I would go to the hospital, and it, it the, the word got out that I was involved with AIDS, and people would follow me off the elevator to find out where those people were in the hospital. <laughs> so if there was anybody on the elevator, I would have to get off the elevator on another floor <laughs> and walk briskly to the stairs and then either go upstairs or downstairs. It's amazing what we fear. <laughs> yes. Wow. Uh, and uh, it, it, it is. It is, and I and I think it's so true that the truth brings peace of mind. Exactly. Well, I remember one time we had spoken, and um, we were just uh, one of our our visits, and it's like the course you taught is still being taught. Yes, yes. They have two or three people now who teach it. Uh, two, and one of whom took my course, <laughs> Dr. Kalick. <laughs> and and that's like... And then Margot Hasher. It's exciting. It's just exciting, it is that, exciting that he's grown. But I remember I was an anthropology major, and I remember wanting to take your course, and it was you had to you had to take a number, like for ice cream at <laughs> Borden's. You had to stand in line, you know, and it, it was like sociology. But it was drawing people from lots of, uh, it's really a multidisciplinary course when you think about it. And, and so, Oh, it's definitely a multidisciplinary. And thank goodness I had uh, wonderful people in the philosophy department, Bob Kirkpatrick. I had uh, uh, people in the history department. Uh, in uh, foreign languages, uh, who would come into my class and speak? So you taught um, it at USL. Barbara Sicardo. Barbara Sicardo. You taught it at USL, which is now called ULL. So we're speaking of the yeah. uh, I don't University know if you know of this, Louisiana. But I only planned to teach that course one semester. It it was one time. It was to be um, a course. Uh, a seminar. My mother had died, and I, I, I'd really gotten interested, uh, and I wanted to look d- deeper into the whole area. It was only going to be one time, uh, and then three years later, students came and asked me if I'd teach it just one more time, and I thought, goodness, I can teach it one more time. It became my life's work. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is that I remember you telling me that the first semester you taught it, you thought you were teaching about death and dying, but you realized you were really teaching exactly. about living. Life and living. And I would ask so, at the end of the semester I got where I would ask the students, have you caught on what we've been teaching in here? <laughs> uh, and and some caught on really quickly, And uh, but usually by the end of the course most of the students had caught on that we weren't talking about death and dying we were talking about life and living yeah and i remember you you put our chairs in a circle we didn't have the line up classroom desks normally uh and we did a lot of drawings Mm -hmm. and and you could learn more deeply when you don't use words yes and also i had people draw death 
Because they couldn't talk about it at that time. Exactly. I mean, you couldn't even use the word. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It was sort of like people were taking oomph and ooing, you know, something like that. Exactly. I think there's another thing along with that um, is uh, the second thing. One, we can't talk about death. But two, and you had mentioned it earlier about what religion does, and I, I, I love, I don't know who said it, that uh, religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for people who've been there. That's <laughs> so, me. That makes sense to and, me. And many, many people have been to hell. Wow. <laughs> uh, exactly. And, I, and I've been privileged to walk with them. Uh, and now I have forgotten exactly what I was talking about. Well, well. <laughs> Um, I, I have been a student at the university since 1970. Oh, I remember what I was talking about. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I think along with this not being able to use the word death is this whole notion of accepted suffering. And that's really a part of this culture. One is supposed to accept uh, suffering. Uh, and... Um, I, I really do not buy that. Right. And uh, one of the, you've heard this story before because you, you knew the person concerned, but I, I went to see a young woman who was dying. She had done every kind of treatment to live. She had a child, and she wanted to mm-hmm. live for that child. And um, she had just run out of treatments. Uh, she was in a great deal of pain because of the treatments. Exactly. And uh, uh, one of, a nurse told her, said, if you would accept that you were dying, you wouldn't be in so much pain. Usually I never argued against professional health treaters, but that time I, I said, <laughs> well, has this nurse ever faced dying and leaving a child and she said no and I said well I doubt she really knows as much about it as you do and I and I asked her I said what is happening what is what is going on with you right now and she said Dr. Sarah she said there's no more treatment there's nothing more they can do I, I can't live much longer and I said well it seems to me that you have acknowledged that you are dying. And she said, well, of course. (laughs) And I said, I don't think you have to accept. Uh, Frankly, I don't think it's acceptable that a young mother would be taken away from her child. Exactly. Uh, And and she fell asleep. Just she curled up and slept. (laughs) And I left. And when I went out to this little hamlet, to one of these little teeny tiny funeral homes that exactly. they have, and, and somebody came up to me and said, I was visiting her, and and she said, Dr. Sarah said, I don't have to accept dying. Uh, and, and then several other people told me that, and it, it really... I I think that's another thing. We don't have to accept the terrible things that happen to us. We have to acknowledge them. You had to acknowledge that you had cancer. Well, yeah. But have you ever really accepted? Uh, I know now at my age that some of the terrible things that happened to me 
uh, domestic abuse, uh, the deaths of some people that I loved dearly, uh, some other things that happened to me. I don't accept them. I recognize that they are so a part of who I am and that they gave me an understanding that helped me then to walk with other people. Exactly. But I still don't say I'm glad they happened to me. Right. And so when I, I have that same life experience, so I go meet someone who's newly diagnosed with cancer. Well, I sure don't tell them, one day you're going to see what a blessing this is. Yeah, it may well be someday, but... <laughs> and it, we, you know, and maybe not. So I find that we all have experiences. We're either bitter or better, or we didn't learn anything. Yes. But I understand what you're saying, because along with accepting from the society around us, then we need to be docile about what's going on. Mm-hmm. We need to be okay with this and, mm-hmm. and, and receive it as like... No, we have to deal with it as best we can mm-hmm. without denying it. Yes. And so we society basically... this is happening. Right. And when society basically denies it, because the word can't even be used, mm-hmm. and now we're in 2018 and we're still not able to use the word, mm-hmm. whoever quoted me could not use the word die. Die. And because it's like... So then it's it's it still comes back to... Uh, acceptance from a medical professional mm-hmm. would mean you're going to comply with everything. And compliance is not necessarily part of accepting. You can accept and not comply. One of my grandchildren asked me not too long ago if she could ask me anything. And I said, sure you can. And she said, are you afraid to die? And I said, of course I am. I'm very much like Woody Allen once said, <laughs> uh, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes. Uh, fear is there. Fear of the unknown. Yeah. Uh, there's also a peace. There's also um, unknown. a comfortableness that I don't have to put up with this much longer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's certainly at 85, it's going to happen sooner or later. Uh, but I I don't know what it's going to be like. So when did you um, accept or understand or realize that that part of what you do is is healing work? When did healing work become a part of your life? <laughs> Have you accepted that? (laughs) (laughs) Or even acknowledged it? Have you acknowledged that? I I don't know. Uh, Early on with AIDS, we really didn't know back then whether we could get it. They didn't think we could. Uh, We didn't know what we were doing. Or or maybe other people knew what they were doing, but I certainly didn't know what I was doing. Um, and, And I... I began to realize that I really didn't have that much to offer, that I was being given an opportunity to learn. Uh, And I I used to always say right before I'd go in the hospital room or into a home, I would always say, Lord, let me remember that I'm about to approach my new teacher and let me be open to teaching. I think I really learned that 
at Compassionate Friends because Compassionate Friends asked me to speak uh, back in the early 80s. And here Compassionate Fringe is a support group. A support group for parents and grandparents who've lost a child. Exactly. Uh, And when I went to them that day, I said, that night, I said, I don't really know what you're going through. And quite frankly, I don't don't want to know. Exactly. I do not want to know. And they had had so many people coming to them and saying, this is what you're feeling. My book came out of that. Right. A a woman who told me, you know, I want to know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I don't need you coming in here and telling me. And so I I knew that I wanted to learn from them. And that's where I started seeing this, that these were the teachers who were being given to me to learn. And then to carry that information to other people. So I didn't see myself as a healer. I I don't know if I still see myself as a healer. I see myself as as going into an area and learning what these people have to offer and then taking that information to people who don't have the opportunity to meet them. Exactly. If that makes sense. Well, it makes total sense because... You know, as I sit here and realize how much of the same things we did in life, but you were doing it as a professor, and I was just doing it as a as a, a, a non-professor, not even a, a college graduate yet, mm-hmm. but we were still doing the same things. So mm-hmm. uh, at, at some point in my life, I had to look at you and realize that we were peers. Of course. We're all peers. Well, yeah, but you know, I couldn't get that for a long, <laughs> no, you could. A long, long time. I, I used to wonder if, <laughs> if I'd ever get it. If I was going to have to just take a stick. <laughs> well, you did get my attention. So, so the thing about um, peer is when you teach your students, you also perceive them to be peers or you're equal. Oh, which, they were my teachers. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so you at least allowed us to have that opportunity and um and 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 that's the whole deal about the student and the teacher. The roles there's role reversal. Yes. I've learned more from my children than I could ever have taught them. <laughs> more than I wanted to learn. <laughs> you know. And I and I and 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 I think for me, the hardest thing has been to let them become my peers. Yes. That even when I was trying, I was not successfully ever teaching them anything. Uh-huh. You know, I was struggling for them to get what I still had yet to understand. Mm-hmm. And so that's just been quite wonderful. I want to ask you if you remember, I went to Baton Rouge to listen to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh-huh. And um, I still have a... And I went to. But you went in a limousine. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Because it makes me laugh every time I think about it. And you look like the president's mother at the time. <laughs> oh, that was Pat Andrus. <laughs> Can you remember? Uh, Martin. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> Martin and Castile. Castile. Uh, oh, oh, goodness. I forget names. That wonderful, wonderful woman. Oh, I can't think of her first name. 
Well, I can't either. Anyway. They uh, wouldn't know her anyway, but go ahead. But anyway, she arranged for us to all go over there in the... In the uh, the limousine. In the limousine. (laughs) And we pulled up at McDonald's when we got there. And and Pat Andrus (laughs) leaned out the window and told the woman that... uh, they had uh, Bill Clinton's mother in the <laughs> and that was me. Oh, goodness, we had some laughs. But we did go. I had already been to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five-day life, death, and transition, wow. and that was a real awakener for me. Yeah. That was just wonderful. That is so funny. So even though we deal with the topic of death and dying or having cancer or not, there's still humor, and it's still oh, there's fun. there's always humor. And and you can trust humor because humor helps you get to the truth. Oh, yes. I think humor has been one of my biggest tools mm-hmm. of getting through the things that 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 has come that have come my way. And if you can laugh at it, then then the air isn't so heavy. Sometimes there's nothing you can do but cry, and sometimes there's nothing you can do but laugh. Exactly. And both release so much stress. Exactly. So in my recent, um, since I graduated in 06, and uh, things that have come to me, I've had two gatherings where one I had a panel on death and dying, and one I had a guest speaker talk about normalizing conversations. Mm-hmm. And when I did the panel on death and dying, I had invited a doctor from Hospice of Acadiana, a friend of mine who made a trip to India with Louisiana Mississippi Hospice mm-hmm. in palliative care. He's a home health nurse, an artist who was visiting from France, and a Rinpoche, a Tibetan Buddhist mm-hmm. Rinpoche. And so like... The reality of that was because I know that dying is not a medical experience. It's a life experience. I know it's not a religious experience. It's, it's, it's an every man and every woman experience, mm-hmm. regardless of your religion. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's something that we don't deal well with in this country. So... I got to facilitate these um, these four people who represented, you know, art and home health. So there was that kind of, and and there was a physician, and there was a spiritual man from another country and continent mm-hmm. and culture and religion. So that we didn't have to come at this from what we think in Scott or what you learned in New York or what you learned on a reservation. You know, <laughs> it was just... And and how do you teach about death and dying without bringing those things in? Because because that's how we teach. You know, you have to learn it from a medical, from a religion, from sociology. So how can we get to a place where we just can talk about it? And I think that's what we're trying to mm-hmm. do. And I don't know that we've made a lot of headway, but at least we can talk about it and put it on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And the sun is still shining. (laughs) And life goes on. And and life goes on. It's just amazing. The train just passed. (laughs) Uh, I remember, too, my first experience. Um, My oncologist has since retired. 
had recurrences and I'm still well today. And, and he told me, um, he says, I think you need to volunteer at our charity hospital. And so I did. I was already volunteering at the hospital where I had my surgery. And I was with him, and um, a young woman had surgery, and she died on the table, totally unexpected and not related to her cancer. And uh, as, a, as a survivor, and you being a survivor of, of, of an illness that, that you know, can be terminal, we have an instant rapport with people mm-hmm. because they know I used to be bald, but I'm, and so when she died, my oncologist was so wonderful, and I don't know if he knows how wonderful he is. He's retired, but he's still here, and he's like, um, he assured the family that the woman had not failed, and he assured them that medicine had not failed, mm-hmm. and he assured them that death was not mm-hmm. a failure. Not. Not not shrouding that in in medical terms mm-hmm. or religious mm-hmm. terms because he had a religion or anything. He just mm-hmm. and then um, and he just left them with that reality mm-hmm. to stew in or whatever. And then um, when we left the room with the family, he just looked at me and said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "I think so." <laughs> and and I believe I was. And so yes. he acknowledged that I was present and. How can we teach doctors about that? Like, that's really what I would like to do. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily me, but get it done. But then can we put this in such a classroom form that they could really learn? We don't have a lot of time to teach them anything besides medicine. And so we often go to a doctor and want what my oncologist had to give, but he learned that on his own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the answer. I think people learn this. You know, we can offer these courses. Right. Uh, we can certainly uh, do what we're doing right now, it's using the word death. So and so died. Uh, they didn't uh, <laughs> expire. <laughs> I hate that one, particularly yeah. that uh, professionals often use. It's sort of like they were sweated their way out. Yes, or date, something of like that. date of expiration. Date of expiration. Like a, yeah. That's probably it. Uh, in line with that, I, I, I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but I remember this woman uh, was told in the hospital that her son had expired, and he was taken down to the morgue, and uh, she was, I was called to come out and visit with her. She was just really upset, and uh tears streaming down her face and she said Dr. Sarah was he cold down there in the morgue Mm. and I said uh, and I asked her you know where she was coming from and I said you do realize that that they use that word to mean dead and he was dead he had been declared dead by a physician before they took him to the morgue. And and she looked at me and she said, so he was dead the whole time he was down there. And I said, oh, yes, Don, and he was dead before they took him there. And she said, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, now, this was a woman who was not highly educated. It was out in the country. But the suffering that she had gone through imagining her son down there in the morgue alone, afraid, cold. Wow. 
which she didn't need to she didn't need that suffering. Exactly. She had the suffering that her dear child had died of this disease that neighbors didn't want to come in her house that <laughs> Right. And that's where truth can so yes. help you. Yes. And we she shroud was these nice terms in a way to that we think it would be easier, but when you're avoiding truth to be nice, uh-huh. you're just encouraging people to live in this la la land of or to live in hell. Exactly. That they don't need to. Let, let's talk for a moment about. Um, well, so you might have to come back fifty times because we could talk <laughs> for days. <coughs> my my, I bridge two generations of suicide. Yes. So my father died from suicide when I was 12, and my daughter died from suicide in 2012. And there are um, young people who die, and I also lost a... um, No, I didn't lose. No. But I had a miscarriage (laughs) and had a stillborn. Yes. So there were two children who died before they could live. And how do you address unacceptable death like you know if you had an illness it's okay for you to die if you're old it's okay for you to die but murder and war and suicide Uh and how do you how do you help people deal with the kind of death excuse me the kind of death that society doesn't deal with well i think um one of the things that compassionate friends has given us and i'm constantly correcting people and they probably don't like it But instead of saying uh, he killed himself, to say he died from suicide. Uh, You know, if somebody smokes and then dies of cancer the lung, we don't say he killed himself smoking. We say, oh, he died of cancer of the lung. But we use that word killed himself or herself. Uh, And your daughter and your father and my grandfather died from suicide. Exactly. Um, again, uh, when we say that we can't talk about certain kinds of things, uh, the guys with AIDS that I was with, and I was with over 50, uh, came to realize that if they talked about suicide to licensed professionals they'd get reported they could even end up in a hospital and so they didn't they didn't talk about any suicidal thoughts right uh since i wasn't licensed (laughs) (laughs) uh i could talk to them about it and they would come and talk to me uh when they would tell me that they were thinking about uh, killing themselves or right. suiciding or whatever they used. And my response was always, well, what are you going to get out of it? Right. And again, we would talk about it. And I, none of my guys died from suicide. Right. Uh, and I think it was that we were able to talk about it, and their answers were really funny. Uh, for for many, there were fears that they had that we could alleviate. Like right. I'm a fear, I'm going to be in so much pain. Well, th- th- there are drugs out there. Right. Uh, they, they, they're coming out with new drugs that right. stop that. 
Uh, I'm afraid of the indignity. I'm, um, uh, I, I, I had one guy who told me that if he had to go in diapers, he was going to take his life. And I, I went to see him one day, and I noticed that he was in uh, diapers, which I always call disposable briefs. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I notice you are. And he said, yeah, and it's such a relief because I don't have to worry about my old girl getting into anything that could cause her trouble. So it, just talking about it exactly uh, made it that much better. But what one guy told me that he wanted to kill himself because then he wouldn't have to die. And he sat there and he looked at me and he said, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And I said, well, not to me. But you said it. So, <laughs> but you okay. said it. Uh, but the funniest was, I, I guess if you can use the word funny, was that they were going to piss off their mother or they were going to really make somebody mad or upset somebody. And, and my answer was always, well, what if it doesn't work? And, mm-hmm. and then you're dead. It's a permanent solution to what could be a temporary could, problem. Could very That's well be. Funny. But again, uh, just allowing people to talk about things. It's very freeing. Um, so if that's being a healer, I, I think you are a healer, Becca. Uh, I think maybe... Part of me was curiosity. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know. I didn't want to do it. It's just I didn't want to die. So I learned what I could to not die. And, you know, you were a teacher and you were curious. It just makes total sense. I don't know. But I, I heard from a very wise person once who said that, you know, now that in in my recent history, people don't always know me from when I was 12 years old, um, people are going to come to me because of how my daughter died. Uh-huh, of okay. course. So what do I tell them, right? So recently I was invited to speak at a, a, a friend's, uh, um, his nephew had died by his own hand, and, and they asked me to speak, um, just say something. And, like, he calls me because, one, he knew that I had had mental illness and he knew that I had experienced the death of a child from suicide. And so, like, what qualifies me to do this? Because I was messed up, because I had difficulties. So, But I was happy for the opportunity. And it was the first time that I ever said this, and, and I could just say that I, too, had a child who died on the day of her choice. Mm-hmm. And that we all have that choice. And to be so afraid that they will die, that we want to tell them they can't, is, is not letting mm-hmm. anybody talk about it. And it, it takes the reality that we all have this power, and I think that makes us all so scared. Yes. Because I know damn good and well I could kill myself, and so could you, and so could anybody. And so the whole, mm-hmm. when someone does leave and die by taking their own life, it just increases fear of death. And mm-hmm. I don't know how to decrease that except to do what we're doing. Exactly. But, but ever since that, I, I got that information, and I've shared it with people who, uh, a particular friend who's a policeman, and he's often called when someone is suicidal. And I said, you know, you just tell them, well, I know you can, but what do you really want to do? Mm-hmm. And then it brings you to this is a reality, mm-hmm. and it's a choice, but let's talk. And I think that that's real important. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I, I had a conversation with the man I haven't yet met when when Dana died, and um, he said, you know, I don't know much about religion. I don't know what they say in churches anymore. He said, but I was with my brother, and I was hoping that he wouldn't die from suicide, but he did, and mm-hmm. there was nothing I can do. And without knowing the details of, of where he was and where his brother was and what he was trying to do, he said, but before he died, I saw peace come over him. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I know he had peace. Mm-hmm. And if anybody is listening and knows someone who died accidentally or or by their own hand or in a way that you find unacceptable, this man saw peace mm-hmm. in his brother. And I believe in my heart that my daughter had peace. Mm-hmm. And even if we can't comprehend why someone would actually do that, and I had to deal with the incomprehensibility of my mm-hmm. father's death when I was 12. And... But there was also something in me that knew he was at peace. Mm. So no matter how death comes, there's no unnatural form of death. Mm-mm. A priest said that one time after my father could not be passed in church. Years later, when one of my daughter's friends had, um, on her soccer team had, had taken her own life, he says, there was no unnatural death. And that was the most comforting mm-hmm. thing I had ever heard. Mm-hmm. So uh, Well, somehow there was this notion that if... It becomes a mortal sin. Nobody will do it, and that doesn't really work that really way. No. For a person to take their life, to end their life, exactly. I think better than to take it, they have no options. They have reached that point. Totally. And I had a number of, of suicides among friends, and as I said, my grandfather and a cousin uh, died from suicide. And I didn't realize that I never talked about suicide in my class. And when I finally realized, I went to class that day and I said to my students, have any of you found it strange that suicide is not a topic in this course? And they all nodded their heads. Exactly. So, and evidently all of my students knew this when you take death and dying from um, Dr. Brabant, you don't talk about suicide. So, of course, we started talking about suicide. Uh, again, I, I think the shoving it away, I had to I had to go through a process of thinking this out. Was this a mortal sin? And then I, as I thought about it, as I prayed over it, I thought, do I really want to go to heaven with a God that would take somebody who was down to their last option and send them to hell? And I thought, goodness, I've known university administrators that that were that mean, but no, I, I don't want to be with that kind of God. My God is a merciful God. A God of mercy. A parent. My first husband died from suicide. And, um, you know, (laughs) I just have had a lot of suicide in my life. And one of the things I found... I just don't want to believe in that kind of God. Exactly. But one of the things I have found is that religion is based on people in a society. 
Uh-huh. And so social mores have a lot to do with yes. what what that religion espouses. My father died in Henderson, and my daughter died at Lake Morton. Yeah. Okay. So as human beings, they went to what they considered to be heaven on earth to go to heaven. Yes. So I, without a doubt, always felt they were going toward God and not away from God in 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 their last moment on earth. But I, I was talking to my cousin, who he's no longer living. He lived to be 93 or whatever, and he was my first cousin. And I said, you know, nobody talked about my dad and his brother who died from suicide. And he looked at me like... And he didn't say anything. And then a few days later, he said, you know, that's true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he said his father was their brother. He said, I never heard my daddy talk about either of his brothers who died that way. So I'm not sure how much religion reflects God as religion reflects the society. Oh, I think religion, as I said, is for people who are afraid of going to hell and spirituality is for people who've been there. Uh, yes, religion is a human um, exactly. thing. And we, spirituality and is not. Exactly. Um, although, certainly, I love the, the religious practices. Oh, and we have them ourselves. Often it We're is, not without our own religious practices. It is through the religious practices that I can be a spiritual person exactly often but i have to remember to keep those separated in my mind right and that that brings me back to you know if if you if you go to hospice you you can't go to a hospice that teaches how catholics die because what if you're jewish yeah and you can't go to you know our lady of lords is is a catholic hospital here but but they also have non-catholic people in pastoral care yeah so I can't teach someone who isn't Catholic to die like a Catholic <laughs> because it, death is universal. And so it it brings us to this other place of being inclusive. Uh-huh. Um, wow. So I don't know. Is there anything else you need to say we're getting towards the end? Well, of I think what, what you're saying is we've seen culturally in the past that people thought um, if you said you would go to hell, if you died from suicide, and they say commit, uh, the people wouldn't do that. Just like there are many people today that believe that the capital punishment is uh, is a deterrent. And is a deterrent, is and there's certainly been a volume of research to show that it's not a deterrent at all. Exactly, um, and it is murder, <laughs> and we we are told not to murder people. Exactly. Thou shalt not kill. That's <laughs> Thou shalt not kill. I got that. Uh, so the, there are lots of things within the culture that are interesting, <laughs> if you want to say that. But I'm really grateful that you taught this in, in, in sociology. I am too. Because, you know, I got my degree in anthropology, which sort of gives credence to understanding beyond one way of seeing things. Exactly. And sociology can bring in the sociology of religion and the sociology of philosophy and the sociology of, well, I don't know, exactly. statistics or, or, or whatever. And it allows us to look 
beyond our personal way of viewing. Becca, I wanted to be, when I went back to school after I was 30, and as mm-hmm. you know, I, I was uh, fled domestic abuse and, and went we back to school students. to mature. educate my, <laughs> yes, mature <laughs> students. Uh, I went back to school to, to be able to support my children. Uh, and uh, uh, I wanted to go into psychology. And when I talked to the head of the department, he asked me what would happen. I had three children. What would happen if my child was sick? Would I miss class? And I said, certainly. And he said, well, I really don't think you'd fit into this program. (laughs) (laughs) So I trotted over to sociology, and I talked to the head of sociology, and and I told him about that, and he said, well, certainly you'd stay home <laughs> with your sick child. And I thought, well, so I was sort of pushed into sociology. And sociology has been one of the great blessings in my life. Oh, exactly. Uh, the concepts, the the models, the theories, uh have 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 been so have been a marvelous set of tools both for me in my own life and for me to help other people or to walk right. with other people gives you with. a solid platform but i certainly didn't plan to go into it and then i planned to go into social work and i was told that a divorced woman with three children really was not wanted <laughs> at the School of Social Work there either. So I became a, a Ph.D. sociologist <laughs> and taught social workers. So I, it's, life is funny. It it's is really incredibly funny. And I'm grateful for the life and the part of life that you and I could share. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming here today. Thank you for having me, Becca. Thank you for listening to Le Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.